Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Early on in his Pensees, Pascal is going to have a long section titled Imagination. It's number 82 in the Brunschwig edition of the text, and it has to do with the power of this human faculty over that of another human faculty, that is reason, what we typically associate with human beings. And Pascal is making the case that imagination plays a much greater role in human affairs than reason does, and that it's actually reasonable to a certain extent to not just be wary of imagination, but actually, as we're going to see, to take on some of its lessons. And he follows this section 82 with a little remark at the beginning of section 83, which says, we must thus begin the chapter on the deceptive powers, and then in 84 and 85, as we'll see, he comes back to imagination. And the deceptive powers that he talks about there are sense and reason. There's a lot of ways in which we can go wrong. And he begins in section 82, this discussion of imagination by telling us it is that deceitful, deceptive part of the human being, that mistress of error and falsity, the more deceptive that she is not always so. And so we've got a little bit of a paradox here at the beginning. Imagination, we could say, is not even reliably deceitful about truth. If it were, as Pascal points out, well, then we could just like essentially use what we call reverse psychology, right? He says that imagination would be an infallible rule of truth if it were an infallible rule of falsehood. But being most generally false, she, imagination, gives no sign of her nature. And how so? By, as he says, impressing Marcant, but placing a mark upon the same character on the true as it does the false. So imagination, unlike reason, doesn't help us separate out the true from the false. It just presents them all kind of willy-nilly, and maybe we buy into some things that aren't true as if they are true, and we overlook some things as being false, and, and so on, right? It could be that everything we imagine actually is true, although highly doubtful. We would never know. That's part of the problem. And he goes on and he says that, I'm not speaking of fools. I'm actually speaking of the wisest men, the plus sage, right? And he says, it is among them that imagination has the great gift of persuasion. Reason protests in vain. It cannot set a, here the translation, a true value, prix, right? It doesn't actually have the word true in there, but we could read that in. Uh, reason can't set a true value onto things, onto matters, les choses, uh, in French, right? So reason is unable to determine for us what everything literally should cost or should be exchanged for, although it pretends that it can. And 
He goes on and he talks about the, the relationship between reason and imagination, right? So reason, you know, can get very upset. You can have somebody like Descartes, Pascal's contemporary, who's like, I don't trust imagination, you know, pure cognition, reasoning, thinking that's what it's all about. And Pascal's saying, oh, buddy, that's just not the way it works, not just for ordinary people, but even for the wise. So many of our decisions and our ideas are being given to us by this faculty of the imagination, which then he tells us likes to rule. And the French word for that is contrôler, right? So rule does work for that. It implies not just giving direction to, but a... Uh, a busybodiness, you could say. Hey, getting into it. It's a, it's a micromanager of reason. And it also likes to dominate, dominate reason as well. So imagination isn't just doing its work on its own as a separate faculty from reason. It likes to take over. It likes to run the show, Pascal is pointing out. And he goes on and he says that it is established in man a second nature to show how all-powerful she, that is, imagination is. A second nature. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. And that harkens back to, you know, a much earlier discussion of second nature, a very famous one coming from Aristotle, where he's telling us that habits are really second nature. And that's not false, right? but imagination also working together with habits, as we're going to see in just a few minutes with some of the examples, tends to produce in us this, what he's calling second nature. And why is it important that it's a second nature? It's not our originary nature, but it's the nature that we live in day by day. So what does it do? He tells us she makes men happy and sad, healthy and sick rich and poor. Now, happy and sad, okay, that's very easy to understand with imagination now, isn't it? But healthy and sick, well, you know, we know that there is a mind-body connection and, you know, we can also talk about men mental illness as well. And then rich and poor, isn't that an interesting one? Can imagination actually add zeros to the end of the numbers in your checking account or, you know, whatever other electronic things you have? Well, it can, that's illusory, but it can make you feel rich. It can also make you feel poor when you're comparing yourself against others. He goes on, she compels reason to believe, doubt, and deny. So that's part of that domination factor, right? And then it says she blunts the senses or quickens them. So it's not just reason that imagination works on. It's also our sense perception of things. And he, he goes on, she has her fools and sages. Nothing vexes us more than to see that she fills her devotees with a satisfaction, and just, you know, in French, satisfaction, right? That is more full and ample uh, or entire than does reason. 
Those who have a lively imagination, he says, are a great deal more pleased with themselves than the wise can reasonably be. They look down upon men with haughtiness. They argue with boldness and confidence. Others with fear and diffidence. Those who rely on reason, who are more in touch with reality, are less confident about things, right? Fear and and diffidence. Those who are convinced that they're in the know about things, that they're powerful, that everybody thinks they're a cool guy or something like that, they're much more confident as a result of this imagining. And he goes on and says, this gives them an advantage in the opinion of the hearers. Such favor have the imaginary wise in the eyes of judges of like nature. Imagination cannot make fools wise, but she can make them happy to the envy of reason, which can only make its friends miserable. And, you know, now Pascal doesn't know about social media, but just think about this. Think about influencers, right? And how full of crap most of them turn out to be, right? If you look closely, if you look reasonably at them, but how easy it is to get swept up in the imagination of, ooh, this person is smart. Ooh, this person is ethical. Ooh, this person is pick whatever you like, right? They come out with confidence and we, like a bunch of dummies and suckers, believe them, right? Or we believe their opposites, you know, contrarianism. And he's going to give a whole bunch of examples here. He says, what but this faculty of imagination dispenses reputation, awards respect and veneration to persons, works, laws, and the great? How insufficient are all the riches of the earth without her consent? And then he talks about this very interesting case of a magistrate. So what's a magistrate? You know, an an official. This magistrate whose age commands the respect of a whole people. Would you not say that this person is governed by pure and lofty reason and that he judges causes according to their true nature without considering those mere trifles which only affect the imagination of the weak? And now notice it. It's quite interesting. He doesn't say, hey, consider the philosopher. He talks about the magistrate, the person of practical affairs who has to engage in judgments, not about abstract things, but about the day-to-day and the complicated, mundane things that people are in conflict about. Now, that person, presumably, is quite reasonable and driven by reason. And then he says he's going to go and listen to a sermon. Now, you know, going to listen to a sermon was something that a lot of people did, whether they believed or not. It was part of the culture of the time. And a lot of people quite specialized in giving good sermons. There's like an entire art to it, right? So he's, he's, as Pascal says, he's ready to listen with exemplary respect, but let the preacher appear, let nature have given him a hoarse voice or a comical cast of countenance, or let his barber have given him a bad shave, let by chance his dress be more dirty than usual. Then, however great the truths he announces, I wager our senator loses his gravity, right? So imagination makes it difficult for this person to take the person seriously and take what they're saying seriously. Then he's got an example about the philosopher and a plank. If the greatest philosopher in the world found himself on a plank wider than actually necessary, but hanging over a precipice, there's a gulf below he could fall, his imagination will prevail, even though his reason convince him of his safety. Many cannot bear the thought without a cold sweat, he says. And then he goes on and talks about other things that tend to derange the reason. He says that, you know, everyone knows that the sight of cats or rats, the crushing of a coal 
may unhinge the reason. The tone of voice affects the wisest and changes the force of a discourse or a poem. And then he talks about justice. Love or hate alters the aspect of justice. When we're judging, we tend to overlook things with the people that we like. We tend to focus in very closely on any criticisms that can be made of people that we dislike. He goes on as well and says, how much greater confidence has an advocate, a lawyer, right? Retained with a large fee in the justice of his cause. Getting a big fat fee makes you feel good. And then you're like, ah, I'm going to do a good job here, right? And then people believe you. All due to the power of the imagination. And he goes on as well and, and says that how ludicrous is reason blown with a breath in every direction. And then he goes on and says, I should have to enumerate, that is, you know, write a whole table of almost every action of human beings who scarce waver save under her assaults. If we wanted to expand it, we could say just about every human action is going to be liable to being influenced by imagination, both for the doer and perhaps the sufferer or the benefit, the benefited person, right? And for any sort of spectators. And he goes on and he says, reason has been obliged to yield. So we're going to derive something from this in a moment, but there's two other examples that I think would be worth bringing up. So one comes up in section 84 and 85. He says, the imagination enlarges little objects so as to fill our souls with a fantastic estimate and with rash insolence, it belittles the great to its own measure as when talking of God. So when it comes to greatness and littleness of things, it takes little things, makes them really important, and then takes very big things and tries to bring them down to our level. He goes on and says, things which have most hold on us as the concealment of our few possessions are often a mere nothing. It is a nothing which our imagination magnifies into a mountain. Another turn of the imagination would make us discover this without difficulty. So once again, imagination is rather deceiving us. He's got another important discussion where he is focusing in on this faculty that he calls the heart. And this is uh, not far from the famous, the heart has its reasons that reason is not familiar with part, right? He says that men often take their imagination for their heart. They believe they are converted as soon as they think of being converted. So they imagine being converted. They imagine a change in not just life and mind and actions, but in the inward part of their affectivity in the very spirit itself that we call the heart in Pascal. Imagination can counterfeit that, right? So coming back to reason, right? He actually says something very interesting here. He tells us that reason has been obliged to yield. The wisest reason, plus sage, right? Takes as her own principles, what? What it is that the imagination of man has everywhere rashly introduced, temerement, right? Without thinking too much. So this is actually quite important here, right? He says that the person who would follow reason only would be deemed foolish by the generality of human beings. We must judge 
by the opinion of the majority of mankind. Because it has pleased them, we must work all day for pleasures seem to be imaginary. And after sleep has refreshed our tired reason, we must forthwith start up and rush after phantoms and suffer the impressions of the mistresses of the world. This is one of the sources of error, but it's not the only one. So imagination can be deceptive. Imagination tries to dominate reason. Reason can even though it's weaker than imagination, not quite get the upper hand, but at least prudently rely upon it. And here's a prime example of this. Uh, Pascal is going to discuss at considerable length what happens in terms of what we might call pomp and circumstance, symbolic garb, arrangements, architecture, all these sorts of things. So he tells us that our magistrates, again, people who are in charge, have well known this mystery, the red robes, the ermine, in which they wrap themselves like furry cats, the courts in which they administer justice, the fleur-de-lis, and all this august apparel were necessary, right? And then he talks about physicians. If the physicians had not their cassocks and their mules, if the doctors had not their square caps and their robes four times too wide, you know, he's talking about scholars there, they would never have duped the world which cannot resist so original an appearance. And then he says, if magistrates had true justice, and if physicians had the true art of healing, they would have no occasion for square caps. The majesty of these sciences would of itself be venerable uh, enough. But having only imaginary knowledge, they must employ the, those silly tools that strike the imagination with which they have to deal, and thereby, in fact, they inspire respect. Is this different in our time? What happens when you go to court? There's all sorts of ceremony. Things are, you know, not, of course, in robes and ermine and stuff like that. Although, you know, in the British places, they have to wear those uh, wigs and that's that's part of what's going on there. But there's an entire like ceremonial function to it. You don't go into court just dressed in a t-shirt or something like that. You wear a, a shirt and tie and perhaps a jacket, right? There's ways in which things are done. We can say this about medicine. Now, medicine has made some great advances since Pascal's time, but there's still something about somebody wearing a white coat and having a stethoscope that inspires a kind of confidence that coming in in flip-flops and shorts wouldn't necessarily do. I mean, we put people on TV and dress them up like doctors, and then we believe in them as a result. And we could say this about so many other professions as well. There's an imaginary power at work. And then Pascal is actually going to contrast this against kings, people who have real power, power over life and death. He says, our kings seek out no disguises. They do not mask themselves in extraordinary costumes to appear such. They're accompanied instead by guards and halberdiers, right? And who else does he say doesn't have to hide behind things? Soldiers. He says that soldiers alone are not disguised in this manner. Their part is the most essential. They establish themselves by force, the others by show. Now, we could, of course, talk about the wild imaginary that so many people in our own time live in when it comes to soldiers because they've watched too many movies and shows and played too much Call of Duty or other games and things like that. And that's all in their head. And that leads them to saying stupid things about ongoing offensives that we see happening or what, it, what it's like to be a tough guy soldier, you know, as opposed to being in a woke military or something like that. And they have... 
no clue what the hell they're talking about because they've never actually spent any time experiencing that. We have lots of men who like to play dress up and buy themselves guns with all sorts of accoutrements that they put on to pretend that they're, they're tough. That's the force of imagination. Real soldiers don't do that. As a matter of fact, real soldiers typically are not all about being super buff or anything like that or having the latest equipment. They're about accomplishing their mission. And kings, rulers, likewise, if they have genuine power, they don't have to rely upon the imagination the way that, say, what we're calling magistrates and physicians and doctors do. So, you know, this is a pretty interesting indictment of reason's capacity to lead us to the true, the good, the beautiful, the just, which imagination often plays a very great role in. And so we have to be quite careful, Pascal thinks, not to be swept along so easily by custom, by habit, into this entire imaginary realm that is set out for us we can't simply say, oh, I'm going to put that aside and only reason for me either. We have to find some way of managing with both of these. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.